Hello, TSF family. We wanted to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and for your hard work to love yourself more and for your feedback. Can you believe it's been three years that we've been doing this spiritual fix and it has been such a beautiful labor of love for Anna and me. We have loved doing this work. We've loved hearing from you and we love exploring ourselves and each other alongside our listeners. We wanted to put out the call for three ways that you can help support us to support you. One, we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Two, drop us an email and let us know how much the podcast means to you. And three, you can donate monthly or even just once to our PayPal patronage. Every little bit helps and we are so grateful to those of you who have donated already. Thank you. You help make this podcast possible. Thanks, y'all. You can go to our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com for information on how to pledge as well as to email us. Hello and welcome to episode 13, season three of This Spiritual Fix. We are in the middle of our five-part sex and spirituality series. I'll be breaking down the book, Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. We'll be talking all things sexual functioning. So heads up if you are in a listening environment that is not conducive to detailed biological discussions. This spiritual fix. Two mystical mamas hacking the self-help game. With Anna Stromquist and Christina Wilson. Hello, Anna. Hey, Christina. How's it going? It's good. How are you? I am so excited about this episode. You are. And I'm excited about this series that we're doing on sex. Great. So if you are listening to this out loud at work... Maybe not the best thing. Put and on your headphones, people. There, there will be lots of words that we will get out of the way. There will be lots of words. Vulva, penis, vagina, mons, orgasm, fuck. Just, just get them all out of the way right now in this series. So as a prelude to this episode, Anna's going to talk about stress because we are going to be talking about stress in this episode in which we are talking about sexual functioning as opposed to sexual behavior or any of the other things that we've kind of talked about so far this season. Yeah. So I watched a great Ted talk. My friend Amber sent me called how to make stress your friend by Kelly McGonigal. I'll link it in the show notes, but basically what is great about this Ted talk is that she says that they looked at a lot of people and basically they asked, do you think stress is good for you or do you think stress is bad for you? And they found that the people who thought stress was bad for them and were in stressful situations, a percentage of them ended up dying the following year, whereas people who thought stress was good for them and still had a lot of stress didn't. So the moral of the story of the TED Talk was essentially that it's not if stress is bad for you or not, it's that do you believe that stress is bad for you or not? So it's one of those mind over matter, yet it's just like Buddha said in the Dhammapada, which we've said again and again, thought precedes all action. So if you're believing that stress is bad for you, then stress might kill you. If you believe stress is good for you, it won't. Yep. Yep. And in the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, Ferris, thank you. He talks about you stress and distress, right? As the two different types of stress. Distress is obviously what the word that we know and hate. When we are in distress, it is a negative form of stress. You stress, which is spelled E-U stress, 
Eustress is like euphoria, EU, that same euphoria. Eustress is a form of stress that's like, if you've ever been in a situation where you're like gearing up to do something and you're all prepared and everything's great and you're just excited about it, but you're just in a period of heightened activity and heightened focus, that can be a form of eustress. So the, the trick really with this is that we're saying is that try and change your mindset so that it's more about eustress, like those excited times that you're just like, hey, I'm focused. I got my shit together. Or even if I don't have my shit together, I'm focused and I have a team who's willing to help me do it and turn it into eustress. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's go into this book you read. Yes. The book is called Come As You Are, and it's by Emily Nagoski, who is a doctor. She is a director of wellness education at Smith College, where she teaches women's sexuality. She has a PhD in health behavior with a minor in human sexuality from IU, Indiana University, and a master's degree from IU in counseling. And she also had a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute for Sexual Health Clinic. So for all of you who know Kinsey, it's kind of the leading research in terms of sexual behavior and sexual functioning. So this book is incredible. I'm just going to say that. It was originally published in 2015, and then it was republished in March of 2021. It was interesting because I got an old copy from the library that was the original edition, and then I was listening to the most recent edition, and she changed actually a fair amount of stuff around it. One of the things is she stopped using the word arousal, and instead she used pleasure. She's kind of changed around some of the language because what she found was that people who read the first book were misinterpreting some of the stuff that she was saying to the point where it was like, promoting behavior that she was like, absolutely fucking not. Like, I'm not going to promote this behavior. Like, okay. like an example of was that one of the things that she talks about is that instead of desire preceding pleasure or arousal, she's actually like, it's actually the other way around. It's actually that arousal precedes desire for a lot of people, especially if they have responsive desire, which is one of the things we're going to talk about today, as opposed to spontaneous desire. And one of the things that was happening was by using the word arousal, like men were like, well, I'm just going to arouse her first and then she'll desire me. So they were like, I'm just going to stick my hands down your pants and then it'll be fine. Right. Like, I'm just going to like stimulate, stimulate you physically and you'll, you'll be desirous of me. Right. So it like, for some reason she interpreted that the word arousal was being completely misconstrued in terms of the behavior that she was actually trying to promote and the understanding of sexual functioning that she was trying to promote. Okay. So interesting thing of that. So this book to me is amazing because yes, it's, it's six years old now. And obviously the most up to date is 2021. So I like the introduction was updated and things like that. And I find that I've thought that I understood sexual functioning. I'm going to be totally honest. Like I thought that I kind of understood it, but you know, it's also been fucking 15 years since I was in college, which is when I got the majority of like my most up to date understanding of sexual functioning. And even the books that I've read since then, are usually centered on sexual behavior, right? Oh. Like what can you do differently or do better or whatever? And this being about sexual functioning to me was amazing because it was about what is actually happening in your brain, what is actually happening in your body, and how can we evolve our understanding of our own desire and of our own sexual functioning so that we can tune ourselves into the right thing. So. The book starts out and it talks about basic anatomy first, because we have a massive spectrum in our world of people who understand this stuff about their own anatomy. Back in the 80s, the feminists would sit around in circles with hand mirrors, looking at their vaginas together, uh -huh. looking at their vulvas together, I should say. 
And that was a small subset of people. And there are people who are in the baby boomer generation who don't even know where their clitoris is. Right. And then you have the full spectrum of everything in which you have now younger generation absolutely knows where everything is, but they may have inherited a lot of conditioning around like what can do what, what can do other things. And I think that one of the most basic things that she says in this anatomy chapter is that we all have the same parts. They're just organized differently. She goes into depth about homologs. Homologs are basically tissue. You could say they're basically things like, for instance, the testicles. Like the testicles is a homolog to the ovaries. They both contain the reproductive matter, right? The DNA that is meant to be transferred to create a baby. So right. one contains eggs and one contains sperm. And as a fetus, before they you changed into your gender, they looked exactly the same. Exactly. So other examples of this are that the, and, and most people, some people may know this, but the, the clitoris is the homologue to the penis, right? The interesting thing being, of course, the fact that the urethra, which is where your pee comes out, the urethra obviously separated on the female body. So it was organized differently. It separated such that it, they weren't all in the same thing. The clitoris is only function is for sexual pleasure. The penis obviously has at least four different functions, one being peeing, one being sexual like transference of DNA, the other being penetration, and then the last one being oh, oh, pleasure. Pleasure. Pleasure is the fourth one. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's the obvious one. And so, and other examples. Yeah, urination, erection, ejaculation, and, and pleasure. pleasure. Yeah. So other interesting homologs that I didn't know about before is that the scrotum and the labia, the labia majora, which is the outside lips, are the homologs of each other. So if you ever look at a scrotum, if you're a man and you're looking at your scrotum closely, you'll notice that there's actually a line that goes down the middle. That line is representative of the same line that then separates in a woman and a female, like traditional female anatomy, to, to separate into it, to make lips. the space for the vagina and everything else. So the two lips separate in the female genitalia, but they stay together and form the scrotal sac in the male genitalia. That's great. Other interesting homologs is that the spongy tissue that exists in a penis, that is what gets filled with blood in order to make an erection, exists in the clitoral structure as well. Because the clitoris, smaller. the, the hood... Yeah, yeah. So, well, it's basically embedded. So the, the clitoris itself, the head of the clitoris, which has the hood around it, the hood is the homologue to the foreskin. The hood around it is, that is just like the very, very tip of the clitoris. The clitoris actually goes way deep down and all the way around, all the way down to around to basically totally encompass the vagina, right? So the lower like the lower part of the vaginal opening is equivalent to the point where the man's kind of foreskin comes all together at that like point just at the bottom of the penis, right? So actually your clitoris extends all the way to the lower part of your vaginal opening. Oh, wow. And so that spongy tissue also fills with blood, also engorges, and also has that experience of like, but it's just embedded inside your body, right? So it allows that when a female gets aroused to actually open the vaginal opening more and do a number of other different things. The same with the ejaculatory thing, which I think is so interesting. So ejaculation is obviously the process for ejecting DNA to reproduce. In a man. In a man. And it has a homologue in a woman, right? Which is what we traditionally call squirting. 
Uh-huh. Right. But the interesting thing is that there are actually those same secretion sacs that exist in the female genitalia that like that for some people, they don't actually know at this point because they haven't really figured it out. But they're women's like health has been on the back burner for the last forever. forever. It's been on the back burner forever. They're like, OK, so we have this same area that is able of creating effectively semen. No, what's I'm semen Rita. has sperm in it. Rita is what we call it, but it's technically because semen is the carrier fluid for the sperm. Okay, right. So what a woman is secreting is basically vestigial, a vestigial ejaculatory response. It's a homologue, right? So vestigial being like your appendix or your tonsils, even though I don't think they're actually vestigial, but in that it doesn't actually have a function anymore. So it's very interesting to see all these different homologues. And so whether you're transgender, whether you're expressing as if you have female genitalia, whether you have male genitalia, it is all just the same parts organized differently. Right. Cool. Yeah. So the next thing is also revolutionary. I feel like I could just saying revolutionary things for me, but you guys, depending on where your level of, of understanding of sexual functioning is, may not be. The next chapter is about what is called the dual control model. We traditionally think of our sex drive as a... For one thing, we think of it as a drive. We think of it as just one thing. We just think it's one thing. Either it's on or it's off, right? Like it's either going or it's not going. And if you have a low libido, then you're not wanting to have sex very often. And if you have a high libido, then you want to have sex very often, you know? And But what they've come to understand, and this was um, work, this is... The, the author's like, the guys who discovered this seriously need a Nobel Prize. Eh. She's like, she's like, they absolutely need a Nobel Prize because it's absolutely revolutionary. Just as much as, as any of the previous work on sexual functioning has been as well in terms of helping people understand, kind of go through this whole process of being like, oh, okay, like I'm not different or I'm not normal or I am normal, which right. is the vast majority of people are in fact normal. So the dual control model is the idea that you have a break and a gas on your sex drive. And I'm not going to say sex drive. On your sexual functioning and your desire to have sex, you have a gas and a break, right? Break being sexual inhibition. Yes. Break. The break is sexual inhibition, meaning what is stopping you from wanting to have sex, which is things like... I could get an STI. I could get unwanted pregnancy. It's against God's will. Conditioning about God's will, about like this is... this is I'm scared um, the kids are going to walk in. All of those things are what are called sexual inhibit... SI, sexual inhibition, inhibitory responses. The second is SE, which is sexual exciters. And this is... What allows you to basically, what allows you to get aroused, right? So maybe if it's, you know, particularly sensitive, it's like, oh, somebody smells great, or I'm seeing a really sexy person, or I'm seeing the person that I love being really competent, or I'm seeing the person that I love being around their family, or, you know, any number of things that what we can consider to be turn-ons. So one of the things that she talks about that's really important to understand about this is that we all have different sensitivities in our SE and our SI. And understanding your sensitivity is incredibly important for controlling the context of the situation, right? So you can recognize that for someone like me, I'll give myself as the example, I have a very high SE. 
I find most things turn me on, even things that I like would find shameful or something like that. Like at at one point or another, I'm more open now, but I have a very high SE, but I have kind of a medium SI, right? So there are a lot of things, my, my breaks are kind of average, right? Like they're not super sensitive, but they're not super low, but that means that I have to have a really good environment and context to not be constantly putting on my brakes because they're, they're regular brakes and they're going to be put on for one reason or another. If you're somebody else, say you have a very low SE, you might take a really long time to get turned on. Right. Right. Cause you have very insensitive brakes, right? So your whole life may need to, you know, one of the examples that they give in this, and they give a number of different stories to kind of, you know, with people with different situations, life situations, as well as different kind of sensitivities in SE and SI. And, you know, people, one person with low SE and kind of medium to high SI, they kind of just needed to constantly be in foreplay with their partner. You know, right. kind of recognizing, go ahead. I was going to say, maybe people who are asexual have a very high SI and a very low SE. Yeah. And, and in fact, that is often the case, right? Having a very, very low SE or almost non-existent SE is usually indicative of an asexual person. Okay. If you're a man and you have high SE and high SI, that might mean like losing your erection mm-hmm. throughout sex because things just keep putting the brakes on it. Yep, Exactly. And one of the analogies that they use for this is that the SE is like a water tank. It's like a water heater, right? So in the sense that like in order to get a shower, you need to, it takes a long time for your water heater to heat up. You know, it's not an instant water heater that's able to just like heat the water with no problem. It takes a while for the pressure to build up and the water to get hot Uh in order for you to be able to be ready for this. So one of the things that they said is a 2008 study of 226 women found that respondents who struggled to become aroused or only experienced arousal under perfect circumstances suffered from significant sexual anxiety that impeded their experience. The thing that's interesting about this is that the breaks, so the sexual inhibition has two different parts to it. It has acute like it has the acute stuff like, oh my God, my kids could walk in, right? Which for some people might actually contribute to being a sexual exciter, right? Because it's a prohibited thing or something like that. But for others, that may be an acute thing. Like right now, you are a high-risk person who I might get an STI from and we might get caught and we're in a public place. And so that is an acute thing that I'm going to say is going to put on my brakes for having sex right now. So you're, you're going to, you know, it's a context that's going to make it so that you're going to put on those brakes. Mm-hmm. But you also have a more slow burn of break that could be on for quite a while. So... If you are a person who doesn't, who hasn't understood this idea of sexual functioning and hasn't quite figured out where you are with your SE and your SI, and this may be brand new to you, you know, you may be the type of person who has traditionally never really felt like having sex with a long-term partner. And that can cause you anxiety over time because you feel like you should, because you're in a marriage or you're in a long-term partnership. Like I should be having sex with my partner. The should of having sex with your partner is Another enough to put on the fucking brakes. Yeah. Right. Right? Because it's basically a context that, that is making it so that you feel. For men, and this is, this is, I should be very clear that this is both men and women. 
men and women can take this test to understand their SE and their SI. Mm -hmm. And it is very different. And not all men and women are alike. It's the same things. They're just organized differently. And everybody has different sensitivity. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that men have a lot of performance anxiety often just kind of built into them culturally, which is something that we'll talk about here when it comes to context. But they can have this slow burn on their SI putting on the brakes for their performance because they're concerned about their performance. Right. Right. And that, that self-consciousness and that lack of confidence is enough to actually impede your ability to have sex in the way that you ideally would want to, or that you envision yourself having. So that is in essence, the dual control model of, of recognizing that alone when it finally sunk in for me, it was huge. And there is a quiz. So I'm just going to give you guys a couple of examples of the quiz that is in this book. And we will possibly adapt to this. There's an online one. Okay. So we are going to put in the show notes, the quiz that you can take to figure out your SE and your SI, but I'm just going to give you guys a couple of examples of it. Example questions for SI is unless things are just right, it's difficult for me to become sexually aroused. Zero is not at all. Four is exactly like me. When I'm sexually aroused, the slightest thing can turn me off. Zero is not at all. Four is exactly like me. I have to trust my partner to become fully aroused. Zero is not at all. Four is exactly like me. And obviously you can do things on the spectrum. So that's three examples of SI questions that you can use to determine whether or not you have a very sensitive braking system. The second is SE, which is exciters. First question, often just how someone smells can be a turn on. Zero is not at all. Four is exactly like me. Seeing my partner doing something that shows their talent or intelligence or watching them interacting well with others can make me very sexually aroused. Zero is not at all. Four is exactly like me. And having sex in a different setting than usual is a real turn on for me. Zero is not at all. Four is exactly like me. The author of this book even admits that this is like a Cosmo quiz level of this and that you could probably do a more extensive one if you were confused about it or you weren't sure about it. But I would encourage you guys to go online to our website and take the quiz yourself so you can figure out what you are. So moving on to the next chapter, which is kind of going to be the bulk of the rest of the conversation that we have, though there will be some tidbits after that as well, is the idea of context. So she uses the word context as an an example of this is that if you are a newlywed and, you know, you're in a setting in which you're, you know, you're at home and you're kind of doing the dishes and your partner comes up to you and touches your neck and starts to kiss your neck, that context could be the absolute perfect thing to be like, let's do it right here on the counter, right? Mm -hmm. But... Fast forward five years, you have a two-year-old or a three-year-old who just went to sleep. You're sleep deprived, you're exhausted, and you're doing the dishes, and the dishes are the last thing that you have to do before you can unwind and go to sleep. And your partner comes up and touches your neck and kisses it, and you might want to punch him in the face. (laughs) Right? So the idea is that we all have different sensitivities for our gas and our brakes, but the context is what determines whether or not the brakes are getting pressed. And it's what is in our control to be able to, to adapt to what we have for our, whatever our sensitivity is in those two areas, right? So, you know, your brain's context of sensation. So, and this, is, this goes back to all of the things that we talk about in Buddhism. When you are in an equanimous state, sensation is neither good nor bad. 
It's just sensation. But if you're in a place in which you're an agitated, then any sort of sensation is construed as bad. It's construed as a context that is negative, right? Like, oh my God, any, any sensation at all, whether it's someone trying to love me or touch me affectionately, like when I'm in a really bad place, I don't even want to accept a hug, mm-hmm. you know? And, and then when your, your mind is equanimous or when it's in a good place or when it's like in a happy place or a joyful place or a place in which you feel like you're not stressed and you don't have a lot of pressure on you, then whatever sensation comes is a good sensation, right? Like you're deeming like, oh, this is a good one. So our judging mind is very determinate as to what is considered a good or ideal context for initiating sex and what is a bad context for initiating sex. And so in some ways we can also go back to, hey, everybody, let's try and become equanimous with our sensation because then you're ready for anything, anytime, right? You don't judge it as good or bad and you don't need the context. It doesn't become as important. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. So the best context in general with all the studies that have been done about this is low stress, high affection, and explicitly erotic. All right. So I'm just going to get that out of the way. Okay. Low stress, low stress, highly affectionate and explicitly erotic. Okay. What does that erotic part mean? The, so, and I'll explain this. Okay. So there's this mechanism in our brains, mesolimbic system, I believe. I am also not going to get into the neurology and the brain science of this, even though if you read this book, it will go a lot into that is that there is what is called and what she calls in the book is the emotional one ring to rule them all. For those of you who know the Lord of the Rings, you'll know the reference of there were a whole bunch of smaller rings, but there was one ring. The ring of power was a one ring that can control them all. And in our emotional centers, we have one rule ring that controls them all. So we don't know the difference between a lot of different things. Like everything goes into that one center And we can't necessarily distinguish, like you can't separate them, if you know what I mean. Like liking, disliking, blah, 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 blah. Like all those emotions are going from that one place that controls everything. The only distinction that we have is that we have three different areas in this part of our brain that help us to understand and kind of unlock this understanding of context, those three things, low stress, high affection, explicitly erotic. It's learning, liking, and wanting. Learning is when we get a sensation and we're like, oh, this is explicitly erotic or this is supposed to be erotic. So this is that situation when you may be reading a book or you may be reading about something that mentions sex and your brain, depending on how sensitive your accelerator is, may be like, oh, this is sex. And you may even get a physiological response as a result of that, right? Like you may even get something that like your body's like, oh, I, that's sex, right? So that's the learning part of this emotional one ring. The second is liking it. So the question is, does that stimulation, is that something that you like, right? So a great example of when you don't like this sensation is say you're reading an article about some sort of violence, right? And this is something that happens that that I know in particular in men is that they may read about rape and they may feel something in their body when they read it, but then they do not like it because they do not, you know, like they don't like it, but their body is respond to, responding to it, which is called sexual non-concordance, which we'll talk about for a second later. But is the idea that like 
it's stimulating, right? Like your brain is stimulated by it and your body may be stimulated by it as well. But do you like that stimulation and do you like what is, right. is, is applying the sensation to your body, right? And then the last one is wanting. So do I really, really like it? Okay, now I want it and now I want more of it. And it's almost like we use the, the parallel to Buddhism and you're like, a sensation comes up in your body. Like when you're doing Vipassana meditation, for instance, the sensation comes up in your body and it may just fall away or it may be construed as a good or a bad sensation, right? So again, pleasant or unpleasant. Pleasant or unpleasant. And if it's pleasant, you may say, oh, I like this sensation. As it passes away, you may be like, oh, no, I want that sensation. I want more of that pleasure. I want more of that sensation, right? So this is the three kind of the pathway of how we get to a place where we're like, we are, you know, the pathway to kind of desire and kind of creating context is this three path system. And so going back to what I was saying about low stress, high affection, and explicitly erotic, explicitly erotic speaks to the learning part, right? Because if it's explicitly erotic, it starts that pathway for us, right? It starts that pathway of like, ooh, this is sexual. This is explicitly sexual. This is explicitly arousing, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of starts that cascade. And then, you know, being highly affectionate really turns on the liking, right? And then the low stress is what we're going to talk about next because stress, you know, we talked about stress in the beginning about the Ted talk, but the stress part of this is really key in terms of like, can I actually fully take off the brakes Uh and want this sensation? Because I can tell you from personal experience, having two young kids and, and all the things that go on in my life, I often get through the first two steps of this cascade. Like I often get the sexual arousal because I have high SE. I often get the sexual arousal part. And then I often even get to the liking the sexual arousal part because I'm like, oh, this is good. Like come the breaks. And then come the breaks because I don't want it because I'm stressed out. Right. Right. And so for me, anything that I consider kind of my like limitations that I have in my sex life are completely because the context of my life I construe as stressful or I construe as not ideal And so I'm always putting on the brakes, even though I have a really high SE, right? And so stress is, it's a sex killer. Okay, guys. And I'm talking about distress, right? The stress that you construe as bad. I've been talking about this and it was such a revolutionary thought for me, but there's this idea that we have a stress response cycle. So the idea is that we all have a stress response cycle. The idea is that When you have a stressor in your life, which is something that is applied to your life that causes a reaction of stress in your life, a change in, you're moving, someone has died in your life, you have a lot of pressure at work, you think you're going to get fired, your child is sick, you are sick, anything that you want to say, those are all considered the environmental things that create stress. And then the stress response in your body, stress is the stress response in your body. Mm-hmm. And all of us have to go through a stress response cycle. That stress response cycle is this idea that you have the stressor, the stressor gets taken away, and you need to go through the full expression of stress in your body. So take this into the animal kingdom. That's not human, the non-animal, the non-human animal kingdom. And Anna's talked in the past about, and she actually, the, doc, the author quotes this, but I can't remember the name of it, when the animal shakes off after being uh-huh. attacked by... The, do you want to explain that real quick? 
oh, well, it's just you shake the kundalini. So, like, let's say two ducks on the water get in a fight. You'll see that they will, like, shake it off. And a dog, even, if they get upset, they shake it off. Yeah. And that is them straight shaking stress and the emotional buildup of energy and adrenaline in their body. That's them shaking it off. It's almost a required part of an animal de-stressing and feeling as if they have gone from a period of being at risk, which is what the stressor creates, I am at risk, to I am safe. The full stress response cycle is the movement from I am at risk to I am safe. So I am at risk means that you are putting on your possibly your fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Fawn, if you've watched TikTok, you can look at fawn responses. Fawn responses like people pleasing and getting really close to somebody because they're supposed to be your person. Or, like, right? big, or getting like deer in headlights. That's freeze. Oh, that's that's freeze. freeze. Okay, so what is it again? Okay, so fight, fight is yeah. getting angry and ragey. Yeah. Right? Flight and in response to stress. Injustice, betrayal. Yep. Fight, flight is running away. Rejection. Rejection. And and probably humiliation too. And then freeze is just, fuck, I don't know, playing dead. Humiliation. Right? Uh-huh. It's humiliation there. And then fawn is probably abandonment. Abandonment. Yeah. So fawn is getting closer and closer and closer. And, you know, the terrible story that they always do, which, you know, even in the book they were like, this is such a terrible example, was they, they did the rhesus monkeys, right? So the rhesus monkey babies... They gave them mechanical mothers. And at first, the mechanical mothers were extremely affectionate and very, very kind. And then the mechanical mother started basically abusing the babies. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, it was done. I'm not going to say it's any better now, but I think it was done back in the 60s. And what they found was that the monkeys, because the mother, the mechanical mother was their main caretaker you started mixing up attachment styles into this too, right? Because they wanted to, it was like, not only were they at risk, their attachment object, right? So their mother, who was supposed to take care of them, they basically kept going back to the mother to be abused because it was not only was it... so fucking sad. Yeah, it was so sad. So they were using the fawn response effectively to try and get close to, and they would coddle them, the, the monkeys would coddle them and try and make them happy and do cute faces and literally do everything that they could to win the mechanical mother back over again. Because... There's a special place in hell for those researchers. Yeah, well, but it also... Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. But it, it showed I, I, us... It, it showed us... It showed us that, that there is a fond response. There is a fond response. And that may not be the conclusion that a researcher who's listening to us would have, but that effectively there are a number of different things that we do when we are at risk. We feel especially at risk when our attachment objects are, are the people who are abusing us, right? Because we're, gonna, we're likely to do any of those things and go into any of those different wounds. So the uh, basic idea of this is that you cannot get your nookie on when you are in the middle of a stress response cycle. I... I feel like I have an understanding that once you get a certain way through the stress response cycle, sex can actually help discharge energy, very similar to when you shake like an animal. Mm-hmm. Or makeup sex. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can all be things that help you finish the stress response cycle, but only if it's used in that context. It's not in the context of, are you desirous of me? And you're like, fuck no, I still feel like I'm at risk. I still feel like I'm not safe. I haven't gone through the same stress response cycle. So you can't expect me to have the same sexual pleasure or desire, or even be able to look at my SE because Mm -hmm. my brakes are on so fully because I'm in the middle of the stress response cycle that I'm just never even going to consider it. 
So that is why context is so important. That is why de-stressing, oh, easier said than done, why de-stressing and recognizing that you need to go through these processes and feel fully safe again to be able to go back into your sex life, to go be able to go back into your sex world mm -hmm. is so, so important. You have to et let anger blow through you, right? You have to let, you know, you have to let it going. There's this beautiful story that they tell in the book about one of the, the kind of personas that they describe which is like a conglomerate of a number of different people that the, the researcher, the author had met. And, you know, she was like, okay, she was trying to kind of take her brakes off because she realized that she had this kind of chronic stress mm -hmm. about her conditioning, like of, of being raped in the past, sexual assault, different things like that. It, she, she realized she had a whole bunch of unfinished stress cycles. And she was kind of living in this low-grade stress, mm -hmm. right? And, and even to the pact where for some people if they've experienced sexual assault, they can't separate sexual acts from a stress response. The sexual act itself triggers a stress response. Mm -hmm. And so what you're experiencing is you're basically saying, okay, well, great. I am having to finish all these stress response cycles. And she did. And she sat there and she was like, okay, if, if I'm going to get my sex life back or if I'm going to want to have an orgasm, this is what I'm going to do. And she said she got angry. She got angry for fucking weeks. And then eventually it burned itself out. Okay. And then she was able to have an orgasm. So I mentioned attachment styles. And in the mother wound episode, we talk about the first mother wound episode, we talk about attachment styles. So as a quick reminder, there is secure and insecure attachment. And within insecure attachment, which is about 50-50 split between secure and insecure. And between the between those two under the category of insecure. Do you want to just say it? Yeah. So, yeah, just to give a little background on the secure and insecure attachment, you have your secure, which is 50%, and then you have insecure, which is the other 50%, and underneath that category, you have anxious attachment, avoidant attachment, and disorganized or fearful attachment. So avoidant attachment is anxious attachment in disguise, so they push away. Anxious attachment is avoidant in disguise, so they cling without recognizing how their clinging actually pushes the other person away because they secretly don't want to experience intimacy, and it's a safeguard protection to choose unavailable people. And then you have the disorganized attachment, which is kind of like a mix of all of them, and it usually comes from a lot of trauma and abuse and yeah. guilt and shame and not knowing what's what and this and that. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that we talk about this emotional one ring to rule them all. The thing is that in your brain, you could say it's in your brain, you could also say it exists in your heart, and you can also say it exists in your emotional body, depending on kind of what context you're using for, or what system you're using to describe this. The thing is, is that our stress and our love, aka our attachment, like how we are able to love, exist in the same place. So if you're stressed out, it's it can be triggering to your attachment style, right? So it's like, it's one of those things that because stress and love are right next to each other, you know, you're, you may find that a stressful situation, especially if it's to your attachment object, but say that your partner has become your attachment object and you have anxious attachment towards your partner, the stress is going to stress that experience. It's going to bring out your anxious attachment even mm -hmm. more. And the thing is, is that Anxious attachment people are more often to find that they are having what is called solace sex. And solace sex is basically 
when you are anxious about whether or not your partner loves you, you have sex with them even when you don't want to or even when something else because it, it validates that they care about you and love you. So instead of the sex being fulfilling, it's relieving. So an anxious attachment person is more likely to have solace sex and they're not likely to necessarily have a lot of pleasure for it, but they're sure going to feel relieved because that anxious attachment has been... They're looking for their, the stamp of approval Yeah, in their panties. Yeah, exactly. And they're using their body in order to be able to, to feel loved and to feel secure again, mm-hmm. right? To, to stop that stress response cycle, right? Because the stress response cycle is exacerbated by people with insecure attachment. Mm-hmm. And then people with avoidant attachment are likely to have empty sex, right? Like basically going out. Doggy style, they don't want to look at your face? Yeah, they don't want to look at your face. They don't want to be emotionally attached at all, right? It's just it's just something that it allows them to be avoidant and to say, I, you are just, you're just a fuck. You're just like a non-emotional fuck, right? And by doing that, again, they don't feel pleasure from it at all because they're trying to not feel pleasure from it because the avoidant attachment wants to avoid that emotional connection. Mm. And honestly, I don't know about disorganized. She didn't talk about disorganized. She only talked about ancient, anxious and avoidant. But I would guess that it disorganized fluctuates, fluctuates between yeah. the two. And so, so that's the idea with the attachment styles and love and stress. So if you find that you have insecure attachment... Or if you fluctuate and sometimes you have it and sometimes you don't, sometimes it comes up. Like sometimes our shadow selves like to come up even when we think we've fully moved through something. You know, just recognize that, watch yourself when you have sex. Are you having sex because you want the other person's validation that they love you? Do you want it to prove that you're hyper-independent, that you don't need love and affection and intimacy? What's going on there? So... The other context that they talk about, and there's a whole chapter on it, but I'm not going to go into it because I want to get into this last couple of bits here, is cultural context. We have a fuckload of cultural context that is really distorting what is acceptable and what is good and what is whatever. Even just look at it, pubic hair is a great example. The vast majority of the cultural context for pubic hair is that you shouldn't have any because men find it gross and because women want to be considered sexual like in Zen porno, right? They want to be as close to that kind of ideal and clean as possible, right? And so maybe you just aren't interested in that, but then maybe that makes you look at your body differently, you know, or be, or, or put on your brakes, when you're in a sexual experience because you're afraid that you are going to be considered disgusting or, or different or something like that. I always love that vagina monologue. <laughs> she joked, actually, it should be called the vulva monologues. But um, that vagina monologue about hair, because it's just this whole really, really interesting thing to be like, you know, I watched the vagina monologues in college, so it was like 15 years ago now. And, you know, if anything, it's only changed. And the fascinating thing is that porn has such a massive effect on what, our what cultural context. What was that one context. about, the, the hair one? The hair was about how my hair is beautiful, oh. even if it doesn't, like, even if it doesn't align with the cultural norms. Okay. And that it's beautiful. And that it's, even if it's wiry, and even if it's, like, even if it's not there, even if it's, you know, what like, not there as in, like, you're bald and not, not purposely. 
and about how they didn't want to look like a little girl, how they wanted to look like a woman. Cultural context of porn in and of itself is enough to completely distort what we consider good about ourselves, about our bodies. She was talking about in this book about how they actually digitally enhance and bleach out vulvas in porn to make them look the same, even, completely distorted views of what mm-hmm. body parts look like. And men, too. You know, they digitally enhance all that shit. And, and of course, with men, that's a huge thing, right? Like, you know, size is so emphasized in the cultural context that you could consider, you could think that you're bad just simply because of what you were born with, mm-hmm. right? And, it's, and it happens on both sides. So recognize that the context of culture could be affecting your breaks, could really, really be putting on breaks that you don't even know about. And the one thing that she says, if there's a takeaway from anything in this episode, which I hope there's more than this, but if there's a takeaway from anything in this episode, it's that loving your body as it is and recognizing that it is normal, unless you're experiencing pain. Actually, interestingly, she said that anxious attachment people are more likely to experience pain during sex, which I thought was an interesting kind of tidbit, talking about attachment styles. But Unless you're experiencing pain, in which case, please go to a medical professional to see what's going on. And there are women health physical therapists can do a lot of stuff without surgery and medical, you know, invasive interventions. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Is that loving your body as it is, knowing that it is normal and it's just same parts organized differently and, and your sexual desire and your breaks and your accelerators and the sensitivity of it all. It's all beautiful and it's all perfect. And the more that you can love yourself... And the more that you can accept yourself as you are, male or female, transgender, wherever you are on that spectrum, the better your sex life will be. And the better, the more you can remove the cultural context telling you that you should be doing things in a certain way. There is no right way to do anything. There's no right way to do anything. So I talked about sexual non-concordance, and there's a whole chapter on this, so I just want to briefly mention what this is about. The idea is that that same learning part of your emotional one ring can cause you to have sexual arousal when you are not actually in a place of desire, right? And it's called sexual non-concordance because of the fact that your brain and your body are not actually matching up. So it's non-concordant. They're not in alignment. And this is really important to know because like, one of the things that she says that, that she said, and this may be just, just trigger warning for people, is that some people who have been sexually assaulted found that their body reacted in a way that did not align with the experience. Mm-hmm. So wetness or hardness happening when they were being sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. That is sexual non-concordance. The idea that what your body does does not actually have to match at all what happens in your brain and she gave statistics and it be similarly too with like a man who's not getting hard but in his mind he's very aroused yep so researchers found that for the male participants the correlation between their level of arousal and the amount of blood flow to their genitals was 50 percent wow so 50 percent of the time men either are turned on and they can't get hard or vice versa or, wow. Yeah. And so that's actually not even that high. And then, of course, with women, it's 10%. Okay. 
women can be incredibly turned on and not be wet or hard. She says both men and women get wet and hard. And there's so much, there's so much cultural context around being wet or hard. Oh, you're really wet. So you must be ready for me sort of thing. And that's bullshit because sexual non-concordance, sexual concordance only happens in 10% of women mm -hmm. in which they are turned on and therefore their genitals respond accordingly. Or they are completely not turned on and in a very dangerous situation and their genitals respond not accordingly. Mm -hmm. So that is sexual non-concordance. And I just want to let you know that that is the case in case you have that stigma around yourself or you think, Oh my God, like I'm getting old and I must, or must've liked it or I'm getting old and therefore I'm dry and I can't do whatever. That's all a bunch of bullshit. Get rid of it. Okay. It's just, again, cultural context that makes no fucking sense. And it comes from a place of, you know, body shaming, body shaming. Exactly. All right. So the last main thing that we're going to talk about is spontaneous versus responsive desire. And this is, this is a really amazing thing because she, she was giving these examples of like, you know, they've been trying to find a female Viagra forever. Really? Oh yeah. No, they really want to. But the thing that it's she... It's called washing the dishes. Just kidding. <laughs> Good one. They've been trying to find a, a female equivalent of Viagra that turns on, that basically raises women's libido. Okay. Like, right? Increases sexual X S E. Yeah, increases SE and lowers SI, right? And what, what she pointed out, oh my God, the things that she had to tell. One of them was you had to put testosterone under your tongue four and a half hours before you thought you were going to have sex. And then two and a half hours, you had to take a pill. And in that case, it only raised women's sexual desire like in 10% of women. Oh like it God. went from what like 50% to 60. One of them was you had to take an actual fucking shot in your abdomen, which, oh my God, can you even believe this, right? Like this is the um, IUD of the world, guys. Like this is, you know, uh, the, the reference being that like there's a lawsuit going on right now with Paragard who does an IUD because they literally haven't changed any of their materials or manufacturing process since the 70s when they first developed this. Mm -hmm. They've not improved the product at all since that point. And I'm one of those examples of people who like it perforated my uterus and then got stuck in my body cavity and then broke apart into a, tons of pieces when they tried to take it out. So that's an example of what is going on with female sexuality. So let's put shots in people's bellies. Sorry if that's triggering to anybody, but anyway, the situation is that like 10, only 10% of women experience spontaneous desire. The rest of the 90% res have responsive desire, meaning when someone is telling them that they're turned on or when they go into an arousing situation in which somebody else is experiencing spontaneous desire, then they respond to the desire that somebody else has. Mm -hmm. And the point that she, the author was making was that all of these companies are basically trying to create pills for responsive desire. They're basically trying to turn responsive desire into spontaneous desire, mm. which is just bullshit because responsive desire is a perfectly acceptable form of desire. So if you get turned on only when somebody around you is turned on and wanting to, to do something, or you need to respond to an external stimulus before you can be turned on, you are totally fine and normal. You are in the vast majority of the situation. And the thing is that, when we talk about desire, there's a lot of, and I said this before, is that desire 
and sex in general. We talk about desire as a sex drive. The thing is, is that a sex drive is actually not an accurate terminology at all because a drive is like, I have, I am driven to find shelter. I am driven to find food. I am driven to find water. I am not driven to find sex. No one will die or their skin will not fall off if they do not have sex. Sex is incentivized, is an incentivized motivation in our head. So the difference, you could think of it as like a push-pull. Hunger and water are a push. Your body is pushed to survive in those ways mm -hmm. to be able to get hunger and shelter, you know, to be able to get food and water and shelter. But when it comes to sex, it's pull. It's curiosity. It's driven by curiosity. It's the same thing as curiosity. Like, oh, I'm pulled to be curious, but it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with my survival. It doesn't have anything to do with this. And so it would be very helpful right now if you got out of your head, if it is helpful for you to get out of your head that it isn't about sex drive. There's no drive to have sex. It is not required in any way, shape, or form. It is a meant to be a curious experience in which you are uh, allowed to explore yourself and just have fun with it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the incentive for it. So that is kind of what I want to say about that. It goes a ton into spontaneous and, and responsive desire. Is there anything else I should say about this? Or do you think Did it's you quite define fair? spontaneous and responsive? Oh, I can, I'll define it now. Spontaneous desire is when you are just going about your day and then you're just like, I want to have sex right now. Okay. Right? Like you may have the smallest stimulus ever. Like maybe you see pigs fucking. Sorry, I have pigs. So that's probably not a very common thing. Let me get another example. Maybe you even just smell see, something. you smell something like you smell a certain type of food, or maybe you see your partner doing the dishes and you spontaneously want to have sex. That is spontaneous desire, mm -hmm. right? The pleasure that precedes the desire is simply the pleasure of seeing someone in their element or doing something like that. It takes very little to trigger pleasure in your body. Like you have a very low sensitivity for, for low threshold sensitivity for pleasure, which then precedes the desire to then have sex or procreate. And then responsive desire is actually, I have a much higher threshold in terms of what pleasure I need to then want me to fornicate. And, and so you need someone to you need some, you need a partner or you need something else. And dine yeah. You. yeah. Or you need to watch or you wine and dine yourself. Yeah. You wine and dine yourself. Exactly. I get it. Yeah. So those are the two different types of different things, different types of responsiveness. Yeah. Yeah. So there's different types of responsiveness. And ultimately I think what comes out of this is she actually has, I'll, I'll give you guys a quick list too of what is considered magnificent sex. Cause she talks about it in, in this particular responsive versus stimulus desire and desire in general. So a whole bunch of, this is again, a survey or, you know, a questionnaire of like what people say makes magnificent sex, sex for them. They are people, your partner is present and focused or you are. You're, you have connection and alignment, so you have a merger. You have a deep sexual and erotic intimacy, so like deep, you're like deeply penetrating each other's souls energetically. You have extraordinary communication and empathy. You have authenticity, so you're emotionally naked. You're completely vulnerable. You, it's transcendent. It's peaceful. It's healing. It's melting into the universe. It's dissolving. There's a lot of exploration 
risk-taking, fun, discovery, creativity, and laughter. And then there's vulnerability and surrender. There's profound trust between you and your partner, you and yourself. What you will notice is not in this list, is desire. It's not in the list. The need to have a lot of desire for a situation doesn't mean anything. So whether or not you have responsive or you know, spontaneous or responsive desire doesn't make for great sex. Mm -hmm. As long as you know what you are. And the thing is, is that you can change your context so that you have more spontaneous sex. Take away all the breaks, turn off the offs, and suddenly you may find yourself going from responsive to spontaneous desire mm -hmm. overnight. Right? Maybe not overnight, but after work of basically taking everything, all the context that touches your break, you may find that you're good. Mm -hmm. I got a quote from the author we can end on, which I think is nice. She says, pleasure is the measure of sexual well-being. It's not how much you crave sex or how often you do it. It's whether or not you like the sex you're having. Yep. Yep. And ultimately, it's all about being sex positive, creating sex positive contexts. Recognizing and loving yourself is the first and key most step of this. Love your anatomy, love yourself, love everything about yourself, love all sensitivities and everything like that. And that will create the best sex positive context that you can have. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of This Spiritual Fix. Please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find us and it helps us stay in the charts. And also, I triple dog dare you to try and get the song out of your head after this. And remember, humility, gratitude, acceptance, done. Hi, y'all. Listening to the last season of This Spiritual Fix may have stirred up for you some awareness of how the mother wound ties into so many of our subconscious needs and desires in our daily lives. Well, we've put together a comprehensive five-week course on this mother wound, complete with meditations, journal prompts, and never-before-seen videos and lectures. This course is designed for you to heal your personal and cosmic attachment wounds, reparent yourself, and surrender to the Great Mother. This course is an intense experience for spiritual seekers, and maybe you're not ready for something that intense yet. So we've put together our version of what we call the Shadow Work Essentials course, the Mother Wound Mini, to give you access and awareness to this wound with tools to process your energy and to remember the Cosmic Mother's love for you. I cannot emphasize enough how much this work has changed my relationship with my partner, my kids, my family, and the world. It can be life-changing for you too. Go to our shop, www.thisspiritualfix.com forward slash shop for more details. Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.